Welcome to the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. Join host Dr. Stefan Dillinger for lively discussions with leading epigenetics researchers. Hear about their past experiments, what they're working on now, and what's coming next. You know their papers, now get to know them and discover the stories behind the science. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Today I'm happy to welcome Paul Shields from the University of Glasgow on his show. Paul, please let me briefly introduce you to our audience. You got your PhD from the University of Glasgow in 1990. You then moved to the Netherlands Cancer Institute and came back to the University of Glasgow for a postdoc until 1998. After a short stint at PPL Therapeutics, uh, you moved to the University of Glasgow as a senior lecturer. And since 2013, you are a professor of geroscience at the University of Cancer Science at the University of Glasgow. A question I like to ask every guest to start off our little podcast is, how did you become interested in biology in the first place and then in pursuing a career in science? I suppose when I was very young, I loved history and mythology, uh, especially Irish history and mythology and Greek history and mythology. And I was fascinated by Alexander the Great. And through that, I came across Aristotle and the Greeks and philosophy and had a very early introduction to the philosophy of science and finding out then about Greek scientists in particular, I suppose Pythagoras. Um, and that sort of, that was a spark. And around the same time, and I'm, I'm talking about being very young, and you know, seven, eight years old, and you're starting to find out a little bit more about the wider world in history. Uh, we then discovered on television Star Trek, which was wonderful. And again, got fascinated by the character of Spock and the logic and this clear-minded approach to the world. So that then, I suppose, fanned the flames a bit. And as I got older then, another big influence was Carl Sagan and the programme Cosmos. And I still have an interest in cosmology to this day because of it. And I had the privilege of meeting Carl Sagan when he gave the Gifford Lectures in Glasgow in 1985 when I was a PhD student, uh, which was a big thing. But biggest influence I've had, I think, and one that still uh, it was, has an impact today for me was David Attenborough and watching initially his programme Life on Earth. Um, and that inspired me to become a natural scientist. So my primary degree is natural sciences, majoring in genetics and molecular genetics. And oh, here I am. <laughs> Uh, would you would you say that your uh, interest or your early interest in history and philosophy um, has an impact on your recent work or your current work? Absolutely. All this has come together in a circle. So I still take a natural sciences top-down approach to my research. Uh, I did, from my PhD onward, do mechanistic work, but I've come back to a top-down approach. And also, I... I'm currently involved in a re-envisioning of the Hippocratic concept of food as medicine and the Aristotelian concept of eudaimonia, which is sort of well-being in, in a very loose sense. So it's a pop. I, I, I'm always surprised that 
despite our sophisticated molecular and cellular biology and all the technology we have, um, we've come full circle back to the Greeks. You know, there's a, a great misquote uh, from Hippocrates that um, let food be thy medicine. Of course, he didn't say that. Mm-hmm. What he did say, though, was that if you give everyone the right amount of nourishment and exercise, then you would have you know, a better way to improve health. He also said there are two things in life, um, science and opinion. One begets knowledge, the other begets ignorance, and therefore a scientific approach to uh, investigating the world is much, much more relevant. And it's particularly, I think, pertinent today when one looks at a lot of the general press hype uh, and a lot of material in the public domain around longevity and epigenetics. There are many, many great claims. Um, There's a lot of industry there that is pumping money into this area, but there's also a lot of snake oil. Mm -hmm. Um, So having a a solid uh, underpinning evidence base is critical. It's never been more critical, I think. So let's come to your science that centers around age-related health, uh, the exposome and the underpinning biology of aging. Um, your lab tries to understand the epigenetic, molecular and cellular mechanisms that link the exposome and to chronic age-related diseases of older people. Um, I want to start with your early work in Glasgow because this city has the largest health, health disparity in the developed world. Um, around 30 years of difference in life expectancy, having both the best and worst average life expectancy tendencies uh, for men in the world all within about 12 mile radius um, so what's the biology underpinning all this well it's, it's, this is a it's a pretty complex topic and it's not well understood and it's one of the reasons i stay working in glasgow so we have the best and the worst um conditions for certainly life expectancy for a man anywhere in the developed world and It has meant that the Glaswegians are very, very um, self-reliant. Uh, I very much adopt the Glaswegian. I've lived here a long time. And the city is very resilient. And they have, over the past 30 years, really pioneered true interdisciplinary or cross-disciplinary studies where scientists... Uh, clinicians, public health officials, the public, the police, the government, all get together to try and understand what's happened within the city. And I've been involved in two studies, one's a cross-sectional one and one's longitudinal, looking at health in the city over 60 years. And those studies have been very uh, seminal and they've shaped my current work. And... Um, Because you know, I, I do want to understand how the environment uh, facilitates someone aging well or aging badly. And in that great debate of genetics versus the environment, G versus E, I started out very firmly in the G camp, and now I've moved into uh, a more center to E position. Uh, I think environment has a, a disproportionately large effect on how we age and of course how it interacts with our epigenome is critical in this. But to go back to what you asked me, 
So the, the Glaswegian biology is really no different from anywhere else, certainly anywhere else in the UK. Um, and the city has a very steep socioeconomic gradient. So in one section, people live in deprivation. And in another section, people live in a very uh, in very affluent conditions. And they give us <clears throat> this health disparity where you know those in deprivation will die anywhere up to 30 years earlier, approximately. There is no poverty gene. Deprivation simply does not mean poverty. It's um, a lack of resources, it's a lack of opportunity, among other things. And this disparity in the city has arisen over time, moving from a, an industrial past through to modern times. And in, in, in that transition, it's lost its social cohesion and social chances due to population movement uh, and poor national government. Um, within the UK, not Scotland. Scotland, when, when this all started, was still firmly governed from Westminster. Um, and these circumstances began impacting on the health of those remaining within the city. So the deprivation and lack of resources and lack of opportunity all overlapped. And a disease home of aging has emerged earlier. So a lot of non-communicable diseases are appearing earlier in life. So rather than people getting uh, diseases of aging in their 70s, in Glasgow in the deprived areas, you were seeing these arriving in you know, the fourth or fifth decade of life, which was not particularly nice. So I wanted to understand what the heck was going on in terms of the molecular and cellular biology. Why were these people showing early onset disease? And I had to think of a way of going about this. Well, there's a lot of self-motivation if you're obviously living within the city to do this. And also the population in the deprived areas is predominantly of Irish or Highland Scottish extraction. So, you know, ethnically the same um, group, genetically very homogeneous. And coming from that background as well, you want to help. So I, I set about trying to do that. And basically began trying to identify markers that would allow me to measure normative aging uh, effectively. So we started with telomere length and we could show within the city indeed that those in deprived circumstances at the same chronological age as someone in affluent circumstances had shorter telomeres. And that was associated with having an imbalanced diet, low household income, and of course, an inflammatory burden that you see um, with many diseases of aging. The, and I, you know, I can wax lyrical about for a while. <laughs> Telomeres don't make a very good biomarker of aging at an individual level. They work well in large numbers at the population level, but for our purposes, this was a good start. and. We, by the nature of the consortium, were cross-disciplinary, but it began getting me to think about things other than a, a standard reductionist approach um, based on a, 
you know, bottom-up analysis um, to what was going on. I, I found the, the, the this link with diet, um, so not eating enough fruit and veg in particular, and eating far too much red meat. Interesting. And it brought me to the world of um, phosphatemia and hyperphosphatemia. So the, the, you know, the level of serum phosphate that you have is very strongly correlated with your lifespan. Certainly if you go across mammals, that correlation is very close to 0.9. So it's very, very strong. And it's something that most sort of researchers that work on aging don't really think about. They tend, if they work in fundamental model organisms and flies and in yeast and in worms, don't think about hyperphosphatemia. And those working in humans are often preoccupied with the disease of aging. Um, so th this is something we've been uh, investigating a little further as well. The other surprising thing we found from this was that the link between biological ages measured by telomere length and inflammatory burden. So one would automatically assume that the more old cells you have, the more inflamed you should be. Uh, but biological age, as measured by telomere length, was explaining less than 10% of the inter-individual variation and in inflammation in the general population, which is, you know, if you do this in a, a tightly controlled laboratory or clinical study, that correlation is much, much stronger. But out in the real world, it gets, well, certainly in Glasgow, it gets an absolute kicking. Maybe we can dive into the details of, of this a little bit further. But um, so this were then the first attempts to um, yeah, do something like we have now the epigenetic clocks and things like that that rely on like DNA methylation. And this were then the first tries to establish a, a biological clock or a chronological clock uh, on your end. Well, it, it brought me back into that world um, more quickly than I anticipated. But, you know, biological clocks, people have been talking about changes in methylation from probably the 1980s onwards, but it's totally really in the past 10 years that we've got effective clocks in that respect. But when we were doing these studies in the early 2000s to mid-2000s, um, I try to rationalize how to devise better markers. And I returned to the Baker and Sprott criteria. So this was something that came out in the 1980s. And it said that any biomarker of aging must be able to ex explain age-related physiological function um, at a later date better than chronological age alone and in the absence of disease. So many of the markers we have really are derived from disease studies and not from normative aging. So they, that was a problem. So my solution to this was to start looking at kidney transplants, so renal allografts. These are bits of he healthy tissue whose function you can track longitudinally, so the physiological function of the kidney. But you can get a little bit before the transplant, uh, do a molecular analysis, and then compare the markers head to head. Um, in that kind of study, we then developed CDKN2A is the a transcript-based marker, so the which cognate protein is P16. And that made sense. Yeah, the more cells you had expressing P16, the less physiological function you should have, because those cells are in growth arrest. And, and in the renal allograft study, that worked well. Yeah, it's a much stronger marker than telomere length. And microRNAs that regulate the CDK and through locus, we also showed could be used to make a little Z score. 
and explain more than 50% of the organ function over time. So that was a big head start for us. Uh, and we could also show that as we began thinking about aging and the concept of allostasis. So if you think of aging as a segmental process, we're not every bit of your body age or every type cell type or tissue age at the same rate. Then allostasis and allostatic overload is a, a measure of systemic wear and tear. And we have looked to see if we could define this through changes in transcriptional amplitude of different gene networks. But essentially, um, we, so far in the renal model, we haven't really found a lot better than CDKN2A and microRNAs regulating that locus, the CDKN2 locus. And very recently then we have begun in the same system comparing head to head methylation clocks. So first generation clocks from Hanuman Horvath and then PhenoAge. And we've also got our own composite clock. And these are based on an analysis of blood in the kidney system. We can also do this in the renal allografts as well. And we're comparing changes in methylation status with biophysical and biochemical markers, very similar to phenoage, or almost identical to phenoage in, in our head-to-head -head comparisons. And we're looking to see how well the clocks in this context match up with chronological age and then renal function. And we also look at them in chronic kidney disease, the flip side of the coin, looking to see if people do show age acceleration as the disease progresses and they reach end stage renal disease where they need a transplant. And what we find is the clocks all work well. And in the context of chronic kidney disease, they certainly perform better than uh, transcriptome-based measures or uh, advanced glycation end product measures, which give biologically implausible results. So you would have someone with chronic kidney disease, for example, age 65, and the poorly performing clocks will tell you that their biological age is 150, which is biologically implausible. Whereas the DNA methylation clocks will say that their age is somewhere between 65 and 80, which is much more acceptable. Um, but phenoage and our composite clock really tells you that the biological age is probably somewhere under the age of 70. And that would match clinically much better what's observed. Mm. So uh, my current mode of thinking is that this sort of composite clock, the generation, second generation clocks, are much better. They're still expensive. Um, they're still a bit time consuming to perform, but they're still good. So um, what you also did is look at um, accelerated telomere attrition and um, household income and uh, diet and also inflammation. So what can you say about um, yeah, the connection between the telomere length and um, household income? What, what is the connection there? So obviously you're looking at an acceleration of biological age. And that you know, holds up across the board. It's been re repeated many times. The inflammatory process, however, is only weakly linked in the general population. So in, the, in a disease system, it's a much tighter correlation. But what we're finding currently is that a lot of the inflammatory burden that we see associated with aging 
is due to pro-inflammatory microbial metabolites. So the sorry, sorry to interrupt you, but the the inflammasome or if inflammaging as you as, as as the keyword might be, and the microbiome is connected. This this is a, a difficult one, in, in because I think everyone has a, a preconceived idea that low level sterile chronic inflammation, sorry, inflammaging, um, is connected with biological age, and it is because obviously the SARS contributes to inflammation, but you a component part of your inflammatory burden um, is due to pro-inflammatory microbial metabolites that are generated from gut microbes. So there's a very strong gut-brain health axis. And this is a relatively new area. And the, the degree to which those microbial metabolites contribute to inflammaging is not fully established. So it's difficult to make a call on just mm -hmm. what, to what degree um, or what percentage of the inflammatory burden they contribute in the context of inflammaging. But in the general population, they are a substantial part of it. And in disease cohorts, they're a very, very large part of it. So you can see some very recent work from Stan Hazen's lab showing that you can track this down to, for example, uh, trimethylamine uh, or PAG, uh, PAG. Uh, and in our hands, at least at least 25% of the inflammatory burden in chronic kidney disease can be explained by TMA, just produced by bugs in your gut. And there, there's a link to the epigenome here, which is probably of interest to your audience in that on the same biochemical pathway that's used to generate TMA, and we don't have a, that pathway on another branch has betaine. And betaine is, feeds into the methionine system and helps provide methyl donors, so derived from nutrition, um, to help maintain your methylone. As we get older, um, our synthetic capacity for uh, making betaine reduces because you know we have a, a natural synthetic capacity for this that's situated in our mitochondria. But as we get older and our mitochondria become dysfunctional, we supplement this with betaine derived from gut microbes. So therefore, what you eat is important for the maintenance of your methylome, especially as you get older. And that, that kind of analysis has taken me back into this Hippocratic concept of food for health. Yeah, so there is also, I mean, I don't know if you looked at this, but there is also this concept of a leaky gut. If you ingest too much alcohol, and then and this must, might also contribute to um, yeah, um, the microbiome feeding into your bloodstream and then having negative effects on, on aging. Yeah, so... Indeed, and that, that, that is also a feature of chronic kidney disease that you end up with a leaky gut and you get both microbial metabolites and microbes able to cross into your circulation and then your immune system takes them out. And one thing that we're able to do currently is when we do microbiome analyses, we actually look at the circulation, not just the feces and not just the oral cavity, because in the circulation, you can pick up fragments of the destroyed microbes. 
and then you get a whole picture of what's in your system, and that works really well. And what we have observed in Glasgow, of course, is that our deprived population show accelerated aging. They're also hypomethylated, so they have less methylation on their DNA. They have this imbalanced diet. They are hyperphosphatemic from eating too much red meat. They have mild to moderate uh, kidney disease, or they have renal function, I should say, more appropriately, that is equivalent to mild to moderate kidney disease. And they have uh, an imbalance or a dysbiosis uh, in their gut microbes. And they have more pathobionts detectable. So bugs that are yeah, do not that do not promote good health, they actually yeah, can contribute to bad health and disease. And the microbes all have the capacity to make TMA, which is converted in your liver to TMAO. And you know, you have more inflammation, more disease as a consequence. And the types of bugs that we find have been associated previously with things like chronic kidney disease, which is very reassuring, but also to heart disease and, and to inflammatory conditions. Whereas the affluent, those that have the best life expectancy in the best part of the city, they have more salutobiolts, so bugs that promote good health. And these have the capacity to break down phenolic acids from fruit and veg and to generate alkylcatechols. And alkylcatechols are important in that they activate NRF2. And NRF2 is a, a master regulator of your cytoprotective responses. It controls several hundred genes. And normally our diet is not good at supporting the growth of these bugs in your gut. So they are much better supported by foodstuffs that have been pickled or fermented. Whereas the Western diet, which is high in you know, ultra processed foods and it's exceptionally rich, does not support them well. And it's actually a feature of blue zones where people live the longest in the world. So despite you know, different geographical locations, um, different ethnicities, different food types, they typically uh, pickle and ferment foods. That's one of the things they have in common. So one would expect that <clears throat> these individuals will have more solutal bionts that can produce NRF2 agonists. That would contribute then to their, their better health span or mm -hmm. you know, greater years of healthy living. Um, and it's a, it's a very potent example, I think, of how you can use small changes in diet to improve health. And currently, the Western diet's a mess in mm -hmm. that it is not conducive to good health span. Um, and if you could shift away from it, it would probably have you know, profound benefits for health through supporting a salutogenic microbiome and better maintenance of NRF2 agonism. If you think of it, currently the Western diet supports an industrialized human microbiome that's outpaced its natural symbiotic evolution with humans um it's therefore it's a dangerous unknown for our health and you know over the course of human evolution we have moved from being you know frugivorous apes to omnivorous primates 
that you know, had a diet potentially of you know, fruits and berries and wild game. So the meat was essentially wild, not you know, produced on farms, different fat contents. And we weren't exposed to modern processing methods and the use, for example, of uh, inorganic phosphate-based preservatives, which again can contribute to hyperphosphatemia and therefore um, poorer health span. So what is so sorry to interrupt again, but uh, what is the exact consequence of this uh, too much phosphate? Where does yeah? So the mechanistic basis of having too much phosphate is well understood. I think if you want to see a a potent example of it, there's some work um, comes from Makoto Kuro's lab in Jichi, um, and he and his colleagues have shown previously that <coughs> phosphate in the circulation. It's carried around as calcium phosphate. And when you have too much, you get nanocrystals called calcium protein particles form with a circulating inhibitor of vascular calcification called FET2NA. And these should be excreted in the urine. But if you have too many of them, they get endocytosed. Uh, the calcium protein particles get broken down in the cell. You release free calcium and you have mitochondrial dysfunction as a result. And If you look at a mouse such as the clotho mouse, so this animal um, has a renal, it's a progeric phenotype um, with a very large renal component. And the animal lives 12 weeks, but if you knock out the sodium phosphate transporter and you put the animal on a normal diet, it will live two years. But if you put it then on a high phosphate diet, it goes back to living 12 weeks. So phosph phosphate is um, it's a potent driver of the aging process. And if you look at human centenarians or super centenarians, they have lower phosphate levels than individuals who will die in their 80s. And human progeric um, syndromes such as Hutchinson's Guilford's progeria, um, there the individuals will have higher levels of serum phosphate, poorer renal function, um, will all well, again die usually when they're 12 to 14 years old. As a consequence, yeah. so ph phosphate is one to watch, um, and it's one that we can do something about quite readily, simply by altering our diet so we're not eating so much phosphate. And um, it's difficult because most inorganic phosphate is not readily listed fully in the foodstuffs we eat, and organic phosphate that we get is absorbed less readily than the inorganic stuff. So yeah, it's much easier to become hyperphosphatemic by eating processed foods and is by eating you know, non-processed uh, organic foodstuffs. Uh, interestingly, we got very frightened in Glasgow because we have a, a soft drink here called Iron Brew. And it's the only drink that outsells Coca-Cola locally anywhere in the world. So when you we thought, oh God, You know, this is going to be riddled with inorganic phosphates and we're going to be able to explain Glasgow's health disparity through, you know, too much iron brew being drunk in, in the deprived part of the city. That was absolute nonsense. Like, you know, I, I had somebody who drinks quite a lot of it. <laughs> I was very relieved. Um, the, the preservatives that it has are, are different. And, you know, I, I can drink it quite happily now. And most of the effects that we see here, we can explain both sociologically and through, you know, the, the food up. So we have talked about inflammation, we have talked about the microbiome, we have talked about the connection of um, 
of the household income to aging. Um, one thing I'm particularly interested in, as you can also see from my medals, uh, running medals in the background, is exercise. Um, what is the connection uh, from exercise to the aging process? So I think, again, from the time of the Greeks right through, being active um, is very good for your age-related health for, for many different reasons, both in terms of maintaining bone density and muscle mass. Um, if you do an activity with others, being social is very good. So one of the things that I like doing is playing tennis because you can stay mobile and active and you have the social component that's also critical for good age-related health. I think we always as scientists are looking to molecular mechanisms, but and we forget again a part of our exposome, our social exposome. Uh, so that the more interconnected you are in, in that respect as you get older, the better. The other thing that exercise does is it helps maintain and upregulate the activity of NRF2. And NRF2, again, seems to be the hub for many effects that are associated with good physiological aging. And therefore, of course, it makes a good target for future semi-therapeutics. But if you go look at the animal kingdom, this is also supported um, by observations that show that animals that live the longest or live in the most extreme environments also have better NRF2 activity. Yeah, the, the, I wanted to come to, to the connection between animals and, and humans um, uh, to end this interview. Um, so there was a, a publication that, that I found interesting and it was titled Long-Lived Animals with Negligible uh, Senescence Clues for Aging Research. So what is there to learn from those animals for the aging research in humans? So, yeah, we began thinking about this and we looked at very short-lived animals, which also have a, a role in this, but long-lived animals that stay healthy and are that are capable of reproduction until death, so they've got a very long health span, I thought could provide clues on how to target central aging processes. And, the, the, you know, a lot of this work that I've described and, and, and this aspect of it in particular, We collaborate with um, the group of Peter Stenwinkel in the Karolinsk Institute. And he's, again, someone who um, reads exceptionally widely, thinks laterally. Uh, and we have um, very much a meeting of minds with our approach to studying aging and health span. Um, so although the lifespan trajectories that we see in different model organisms depict remarkable similarities in the aging process with humans. You've only got to look at the, the hallmarks of aging, which are common across taxa. Many wild animals don't have the time to develop features of senescence because either they die of disease or they're predated or they starve before they become old enough. Um, so they, they offer a, a, a new system to look at aging in a, a more natural context rather than metabolically morbid standard laboratory models. Um, and for the wild animals in order to activate extra resources for survival during stressful periods they can either adopt strategies such as hibernation and we see hibernating animals tend to live longer than their non-hibernating counterparts and we think that aging programs are probably dampened during such periods um, and this therefore you know gives us a little handle to see if we can address issues on human morbidity and mortality. For example, we have um, 
projects looking at hibernating bears and they're led by the Carolinska Institute that we're now part of. Um, we're also looking at hibernating animal dormice, which again are very long-lived. But there are a number of things that come out of such studies that show that stress resistance is very much a common trait of long-lived mammals. And I think common features include uh, better maintenance of protein homeostasis, better maintenance of mitochondrial function, and of course, NRF2 activity. And you know, a better understanding of all that biology may then contribute to a better understanding of where it goes wrong for humans and tell us where to intervene. Uh, and it also gives you a, a handle on looking at them um, biomimetic approaches to aging. So looking at where nature has already solved through evolution the problems we're trying to address. And that's something I'd say, it's another thing you can maybe come on to. But I think in terms of the long-lived species, again, you see many of these species can live in extreme environments. And therefore, they give you a better insight into how the exposome, so that's you know defined as the total um, biotic and abiotic life course exposures that you have. And it's how that impacts on health. So you can look at the ocean uh, cohog. So it's a, a little bivalve mollusk. And it has a, a maximal lifespan in different populations. So those that live, for example, in warmer climates versus those that live in the Arctic. The lifespan difference is from 36 to greater than 500 years. So it's huge. And you can count the little uh, growth rings in their shells, or you would count tree. Uh, you know, if you cut through a tree and began cutting bark rings. So, despite small, similar size and living conditions, there's a, a massive disparity in aging there. Yeah. So the long-lived species, which is the I think, Arctica Icelandica, is the longest-lived non-colonial metazoan known on the planet. Um, and that exceptional longevity appears independent of some of our hallmarks of aging, which is a bit bizarre. So telomere length regulation, for example, doesn't play a part. Um, but the longevity differences do seem to be related to changes in environmental conditions. So temperature, nutrition, etc. Um, and they have better protein, protein homeostasis and better maintenance of mitochondrial activity. And again, better NRF2 activity, as you might expect. Um, so, I mean, I, I love looking at how nature has adapted through evolution to generate species that are very long-lived. And I like seeing that commonality in terms of the potential mechanistic underpinnings that we can then exploit. And, the exploitation, for example, around NRF2 is a lot easier than you know, one would have anticipated, given that we have synthetic drugs that can activate this quite successfully and they're used clinically. But also, we have now identified bioactives and foodstuffs that can do so equally as well. Um, so it's a very exciting time in that 
we can then take things that we have been ingesting safely for millennia and start to repurpose them. Um, yeah, that sounds very interesting. So is that what you're working on right now and let's say for the next five years? So over the next five years, what I'm trying to do is adapt DNA methylation clocks to give us a more accurate measure of aging and start applying them to the Glasgow population. But I want to apply them strictly in the context where we will introduce interventions that we want to assess appropriately and accurately. So if we say something's going to improve your health and slow down how you age or slow down the rate at which you are putting miles in the clock, then this provides us an evidence base for it. We're currently working on a range of center therapies. So the portfolio of research within the group is quite broad. We are looking at repurposing uh, clinically approved drugs as center therapeutics, but also looking at uh, bioactive substances derived from foods that can do the same thing. Um, and we are looking more effectively at modifying the microbiome to do this as well. And in collaboration with um, Denise Mafra at Fluminense in Brazil, we have started applying, or part of a, a large grouping, uh, looking at food as medicine to treat uh, chronic kidney disease, and particularly those on hemodialysis. And um, with some initial success in that we can lower inflammatory burden and upregulate NRF2 activity through the incorporation of resistant starch, so inulin, to promote um, the growth of salutogenic microbes and reduce the numbers of pathobionts present. Um, so that's where we're heading. And I'm also thinking about aging in the context of allostatic load and not just an extrapolation of what you see at a cellular level based on current biomarkers. Mm. Uh, and the final thing again that we're involved in is biomimetic studies that tie into planetary health because what is good for the our health is also good for the health of the planet. So modulating what we eat and how we live and how that food is produced has a knock-on effect in the planetary health. And it's important because, for example, again, the exposome, three exposome factors, that's imbalanced diet, tobacco smoke, and small particulate matter, or, uh, air pollution, is responsible for 50% of deaths globally annually. Horrible stuff. Um, so we need to improve that. And many of the effects of your exposome, so the diet, particulate matter, heat stress, are mediated through the activities of NRF2 in your genome. So again, we want to give ourselves a fighting chance mm -hmm. uh, to survive in a what, what will become more um, extreme and challenging environmental circumstances. So yeah, it's a broad portfolio of research, but it's um, natural sciences. Yeah, and it's very interesting and very um, yeah applicable or uh, yeah very near to to uh, the reality of the the people. So to finish off this interview, I have two more rather general questions. The first one, uh, did you at one point of your career face the situation that you have reached a dead end or did not know how to proceed to unravel the questions you wanted to answer? Ooh, uh, probably not. I've usually got far too much going on. And um, I think it, you should always be adaptable, you know, bend rather than break. 
and you shouldn't bang your head against the wall thinking there's no way forward. Um, I remember in a conversation with Martin Shelley, who's at the Karolinska, and it's a guy that trained at the MIT before going back to, to Sweden. And he once said to me, if you're good, you've got more than one good idea. If you're not good, you've only got one good idea. And it, it always stuck with me. So I, I'm not precious about things. I can let go and try and move on. I don't try and box myself into a corner if we're not making progress. So the idea is you cast your net wide and you think laterally. So I love this idea of the Medici effect where the Medici used to bring tradesmen, artists from you know across the board, put them together. And at that crossroads where they met, you'd have much more productive ideas and you move things forward. And that's why I like a natural sciences approach again, because I can be cross-disciplinary in my approach. And therefore, we tend not to become stagnant or get stuck. So it's not about dead ends, but it's rather about managing resources. Absolutely. So in the last 45 minutes, we have taken a journey through your scientific career. Can you maybe give a short summary about your most important findings or something that we might have missed? I think the most important finding for me is that environment is probably more important to your genetics and how you age. Um, epigenetics is critical in this because it you know, allows your genome to plastically model itself to changes in the epigenome or in the environment at uh, short notice. The other thing I, I think that's important is, yeah, don't be precious, be open and collaborate. And the most important, you know, that's as a, as a personal finding. I think the other important things that I've found are that probably Tina likes a very weak biomarker evasion and P16-based measures are better. Um, and that what we do really has got wide-ranging implications for human health, planetary health, and is not just deposited in one silo. Yeah, I think the, that's the other important thing that I've discovered is that doing research across silos is better than within one. If that makes sense. Yeah, totally does. Uh, so thank you, Paul, for your time and for being on the show. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. We hope you enjoyed it. You can find all the mentioned references in the show notes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. We'd love to hear from you, so please send us your feedback on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or via email at podcast at activemotif.com, and we'll give you a shout-out in a future episode. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog at activemotif.com forward slash blog. Thanks for listening and stay tuned.